Hey everybody, it's uh, Mike here, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast, uh, the only podcast where you get to listen to myself, Josh, and Tim talk with people much smarter than us every week. Uh, you guys think that's a fair description? It's not a very high bar with me, but yeah, very true. <laughs> that's Tim over there. Josh, how you doing today? Good, dude. Happy to be here. Happy to be back. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, man. Very descriptive. <laughs> well, don't put me on the spot like that, you... <laughs> What is our goal? Is it what is our goal with this intro? Is it to talk about the guest? <laughs> yeah, well, at some point, no. but no, we kind of just go back and forth about random stuff for a little bit, then we talk about the guest. That's how it works. <laughs> um, okay, three, two, hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I'm your co-host Mike. We got Josh and Tim over there. How you guys doing today? Doing good, dude. Happy to be back. I had a uh, few week hiatus due to traveling, but I am set in stone in Columbus for at least the next few days. So it's good to be here. Yeah. It makes you feel any better. I'm a little jealous. I miss traveling. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big traveling guy. I don't like flying. Flying is not my favorite I love it. event. There, there are two different definitions of traveling. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's enjoyable traveling. Then there's leaving for, where was I even? I was Scranton. in Scranton. I was in Scranton. Selling yeah. to Dunder Mifflin. Scranton, Pennsylvania. We so, both made that same joke, right, by no. the way. I made it the day before. So I'm very happy about that. We leave We leave on a, on a Monday at five o'clock. We fly to Charlotte, uh -huh. which... Clearly, why do you go to wait Charlotte's like not even in the Scranton doesn't have a very big yeah, airport. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a not a big map guy either, but that is definitely not closer to right. Pennsylvania. And then we fly to Pennsylvania, and I'm back by by nine o'clock the next day. So the whole experience was just uh, pretty, and I hate flying. Was pretty mm -hmm. miserable. Yeah. So. Well, at least you got to meet Michael Scott, right? Yeah. Well, no, not that either. And if and if our if our client is listening, though, it was beautiful area, though beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Really liked being there. Absolutely loved it. <laughs> really would definitely like to make the trip again, but uh, it really sucked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys are probably wondering out there uh, who we're talking to this week. Obviously, you have to listen to us kind of prattle around for a little bit before we get there. But, well, they've uh, read the title before, so it's a yeah, little bit of a Yeah, I guess that's true. You guys know. Why, I, well, what am I even doing? Let's Why don't just get you to tell the episode. Us. Tell Josh and I, because okay, we don't know. Okay, sorry. Lou Von Thayer this week, uh, and Lou is the CEO of Battelle. And uh, man, really smart guy, but just... Great, great conversation. And Battelle is just a really cool organization to have here in town that, that makes Columbus really stand out, puts us on the map. So I really enjoyed it. What about you guys? Yeah, it was cool to hear about his background and his, his path to where he is today. He was obviously, um, you would you would assume a person like him is extremely sharp, but you can hear it just from the mm -hmm. answers that he gave and, and the dialogue that we carried with him. And then, you know, just how they've responded through COVID and how he talks about how they're able to adapt as an organization and, and what they're looking forward to the future. And how he continues to run an organization like that that has so many different initiatives going on mm -hmm. internally at once is uh, really interesting and impressive to hear. So I was very excited with the way the conversation turned out. Yeah. And uh, guys, I hope hope you enjoyed it as well. I guess I shouldn't say guys. I keep, you know, something, guys. And I, now I'm talking to Tim and Josh. I need to stop using the term guys to describe our listeners because they're not all guys. So everybody, I hope you enjoy this episode and uh, we'll be right back. This is Conquering. Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Today on the show, Jenny Brittenbauer of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. I'm truly never comfortable. When I'm comfortable, I'm bored. I just have to keep going. Only when you're a little bit scared are you in a place where you're about to learn something. We're explorers, and explorers are making discoveries because they are going places where people haven't before. Urban Meyer. There's one guarantee in this world, and that's hard work will be rewarded. And hard work, you have to embrace discomfort. I love how you said that. Live uncomfortably. Donato's Jane Abel. We have a umbrella 
idea of agape capitalism, which is about doing business and doing it with love and giving back to the community. And I believe in our products, but more importantly, I believed in our people. Pelotonia CEO, Doug Olman. There's this genuine pride for things that were born and raised in Columbus. And that's awesome. At the same time, there's this beautiful Midwest humility. People don't necessarily care about who gets credit. Cameron Mitchell of Cameron Mitchell Restaurants. One of our goals is to be better today than we were yesterday and better tomorrow than we are today. And that goal stays the same 24-7, 365. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I'm Mike, one of your co-hosts. We got Josh and Tim here with us today. Hello, hello. How's it going? Good, good. All right. And uh, we're, we're really excited. Uh, we've got a, a really special guest on the show today, uh, Mr. Lou Von Thayer. And Lou is the president and CEO of Battelle. And he became president and CEO of Battelle on October 1st of 2017. Lou began his technology career with AT&T Bell Laboratories and spent a number of years at General Dynamics, then joined Latos Inc. as president of the company's national security sector. Uh, before joining Patel, Lou served as CEO of DynCorp International, and he has also served as board chair of Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, co-chair for UT Patel, and he's on the board of the Defense Science Board, the National Defense Industrial Association, the Nationwide Children's Hospital, Nation's Veterans Memorial and Museum, and TAPS, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, as well as uh, heavily involved with the OSU Board of Trustees. So really excited to have Lou joining us today and talk about his career and everything he's got happening at Patel. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Lou. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, it's it's exciting to have you joining us. And uh, we are remote and, uh, you know, respecting our social distancing guidelines. So uh, this is uh, one of our first few Zoom in interviews, but we appreciate you uh, joining us remotely here. Um, one of the first places we like to start, Lou, is just talking a little bit about your life before Battelle. So growing up, earlier jobs, kind of anything that highlights along the way to your career, really from that perspective of our listeners, right, who are young professionals, folks that are trying to really figure their paths out today. So if there's any big highlights that stand out to you uh, that led to your career path, that, that would be a great place to start. Yeah. So, you know, it was a dark and stormy night and I, I won't start back that early, but um, no, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas. So I was actually born in Northern Ohio, but my uh, dad worked for Goodyear. He was a maintenance guy and uh, got transferred. Uh, he was one of the guys who kept all the machinery running uh, when I was about five years old and we moved to Topeka and um, it was a good place to grow up, a pretty blue collar community. Uh, I always liked to tinker things uh, because my dad was good mechanically. Uh, he never did college, but um but he could tear apart an engine. He could do a lot of things. I always spent a lot of time, uh, and I think a lot of my interest in learning to being really excited about figuring out how things worked and um, how things could be improved um, came from that. Uh, so growing up, it was anything for a buck. Uh, you know, I was pretty pretty much taught to work hard, and if you had a job, you came there looking for work, and you worked as hard as you could. So, you know, I mowed lawns and did all those kind of things, and worked at a department store. Uh, all through high school, I was out for sports and doing school, uh, and then summers in college as well. Got to go to Kansas State. I was the first in my family to graduate college and uh, became an engineer because I had a science teacher that actually um, told me I was good at math, uh, so I should think about being an engineer. And I don't think I'd met an engineer at that point in my life yet, um, but it turned out to be a good thing for me. Uh, it got me very interested in, in areas that were um, – 
just life-defining, to understand how things worked and what could be done better. Those days, you know, a lot of things we take for granted now, um, we carry around supercomputers in our pockets on cell phones and and do things we couldn't even dream of back at that time. And uh, engineers and science and physics made all that stuff happen. So after I got out of college, uh, AT&T Bell Labs actually offered me a job, which I was pretty excited about because uh, for some of your listeners may be too young uh, to know what a Bell Labs was, but uh, Bell Labs was a research arm of AT&T that came from Alexander Graham Bell that actually uh, invented the telephone. And it was an organization that for 110 years did more than one patent a day. You know, there I got to meet Nobel laureates and people that wrote the textbooks uh, that I actually studied in college. It was just a fabulous place for a young engineer to grow up and exciting and got to do really interesting work. Um, And then about 13 years into that, uh, General Dynamics came and bought our division. And that was kind of a traumatic event for us, but it ended up being really good. And I think for a lot of your listeners, um, I'd gotten very good at engineering and program management and designing and building things and and managing groups, but Bell Labs wasn't very good at business. And uh, General Dynamics had a new CEO that had just stepped in and was doing acquisitions. His name was Nick Shabraya. And he really redefined the whole um, business model for the defense industry. And I learned an awful lot from Nick. And it really taught me the um, business side of, of how things work and how you have to create resources and funds and cash uh, to be able to do all those exciting things that you want to do uh, in your business and in your life. So it's valuable lessons there. So I spent my first 30 years at those two locations. I had an opportunity to make a change at that point and uh, went and helped a company named SAIC. that was about a $12 billion defense firm. GD, we went from about $3 billion when they bought uh, my group to about 35 by the time I left. So it was a really exciting ride. And then I got to basically run to help uh, SAIC split into two companies and run a big chunk of one of those companies uh, for a few years. And then had a chance for my first CEO job you know, defining moments. It was uh, with private equity, a couple billion dollar company. It was DynCorp and did very important logistics all over the world for the um, for the military. And on my, by the end of my second week, we had three individuals that had been killed in Afghanistan. And for a young CEO who was new in the job, um, you know, that was kind of a career making moment, uh, meeting the families, looking people in the eye, traveling over there, the first CEO to go over there in a long time. Uh, meeting with all of our people. We had about 5,000 there at the time. You know, those are kind of the things that shake you to the core, but uh, it is true. Those experiences are what make you stronger. And uh, actually through the years, I've become a bit of a turnaround artist. And when you step into difficult situations, the fact that you've been through even more difficult situations, it gets pretty hard to shake you after a while. And I think those are some things that really kind of shaped me and brought me into Patel, which uh, led me to where I am today. So it's it's a wild ride, and you talk about you know the the first thirteen years of your career at AT and T, and I'm curious to know as you as you progressed through there, were you really targeted on becoming a C level executive someday? Were you were you you know working to no end, or were you just kind of enjoying the ride and, and following your passions? What did that early part of your career look you, like? You know, early on, I was following my passions, and uh, uh, I loved doing engineering. I'd gotten a few patents. I got to work on some super cool uh, defense programs that were doing cutting edge technology that nobody in the world knew about. It was just thrilling. Uh, And then I got the opportunity to be a program manager, and it's almost an experiment that the company was doing. And as I got to do that, I learned very quickly that I actually got more excitement out of having influence on more people. 
you know, suddenly we were able to grow this little program I'd stepped into from, you know, $100,000 to a few years later, it was about $50 million a year. And we hired hundreds and hundreds of people. And I got to see all these people's career grow. I got to see and coach them and work with them every day as they got new opportunities. Uh, and I decided I really liked that. So I think that's really what set me on the path for having a goal of, um, of being a C-level manager. And to be honest, I never dreamed, you know, that I'd have the career that I've had that i my last 10 years at General Dynamics, I was an officer and a president of one of their big divisions and um, and then to go on to, you know, Lidos and and DynCorp and now at Patel, uh, you know, these are things I really couldn't have pictured earlier in my career. But I think just by, you know, taking some risk along the way, having fun, working real hard, um, you know, I've been very fortunate. Is, is the risk what sticks out the most to you as you look back and you you try to wonder why you were selected for the certain roles? Um, is there anything that sticks out to you in particular? Was it w- work ethic or intelligence or? Well, yeah. I mean, I was at Bell Labs. There was a lot of intelligent people and a lot of people I think were probably smarter than I was. You know, definitely a place where all the A students are there. But uh, I think it was the work ethic was the first thing. And, and then it was very unnatural for me to take risks. But I quick as I had a chance to do more and more, take on some of the tougher projects. You know, I got great advice uh, early in my career where uh, a person who'd been pretty successful told me, "Always take on your boss's hardest problem." And I started doing that, and I started working through those things, and I actually found that to be very fulfilling to take on things that nobody had ever done before and finding ways to get through it. Uh, and it was just exciting and fulfilling, and it just left uh, left you feeling very rewarded uh, when customers got those products. That I mean, that's a that's a pretty cool phrase right there. Take on your boss's hardest problem. I mean, that if our listeners out there take away anything, I think that's a great, great takeaway. Hey, everybody, we're going to take a quick break here to talk about one of our sponsors, One Columbus. You know, it really couldn't be cooler to have a sponsor and a partner like One Columbus. They are directly in alignment with everything we stand for and everything we're looking to promote here at Conquering Columbus. I mean, they just want to bring the most competitive companies to the area and make everything about the city and the region just one of the greatest places to live in the United States and in the world for that matter. Yeah, they're like the ultimate Columbus hype man. They're trying to bring new businesses here, show them what our strengths are, but also address some of the weaknesses and say, like, this is how we could get better. So for us, we're excited to help promote their goal and help tell the story with them on board. Absolutely. And uh, if you guys want to learn more about One Columbus, check them out at columbusregion.com. That's columbusregion.com. So you mentioned that, you know, not only are you doing that, but you got, you kind of built a reputation as a turnaround artist where you, you would step into difficult situations and, and, and take them head on and, and turn them around. So when you enter a situation right, like that, right, you're looking at a problem that hasn't been solved, that's been a problem for a while, or, you know, there's a situation where you've got a, you've got to make that turnaround. What are some of the first things you're looking at? How do you kind of break that down? Yeah. So I think the first thing is you have to understand ground truth. Um, People that are involved with situations like that, it's human nature, will get to the point that you rationalize your own behavior. And sometimes you have to get outside people in. So one of the first things I've learned to do is just bring in a couple outside people from other parts of the organization, if it's a big organization or consultants I know and others, and just look through everything that's there, figure out, you know, what is it we're really dealing with? What are the good parts that we can um, build on? And what are the parts that maybe we need to make some changes on? And then People look at turnaround people as uh, people that just come in and cut everything to the bone. I think that's the last thing you want to do. What you really want to do is figure out what made the company great in the first place, kind of how did it lose its way or slide off, and what of that can be recovered, you know, how relevant is it still to the market and the customers, and and then 
be aggressive, you know, go for it in the areas where you can be the best. Um, I was never a huge Jack Welch fan, but I, one thing he said, I always thought has really made sense. And, and that is you always want to be the leader in where you compete. Uh, you know, where the GE had the old model of one or two in the markets or they would exit. I think there's a lot of value in thinking about that, that you really want to be differentiated and be able to succeed and thrive in the places you're going to compete. If you're just an, an also brand, um, it's probably going to be a tough life over the long run. You may have some good stints in good markets, but when the markets go bad, um, it'll be those ones and twos that survive and the others are usually left, um, you know, chasing the scraps. So, so let's chase it to Battelle then. What initially drew you to the company in 2017 when you joined and, and what enticed you to want to take on uh, that particular role? Yeah, for me, there was really two things. Um, first is I, I knew it was a bit of a turnaround. I knew Battelle early in my career. They had a great reputation, obviously great scientists, but I hadn't heard of them in a long time. And I think they had, I wouldn't say lost their way, but had kind of gone to sleep um, and, and were having some struggles. Uh, and, and for me, the thought to take that Bell Labs type organization, which I really think of Battelle as, and our people are definitely fill into that uh, all the A students category, and then apply a business model to it, which I think I could actually do now after the experience I had at General Dynamics and the other places since then, that we could actually build a strong model that could survive in R&D. Not very many, in fact, I don't know of any R&D focused companies that don't do manufacturing uh, and can build scale and survive over the long run. Battelle's one of the few, and we're trying to build a model that can really thrive. And for me, it was really exciting to be able to think through this challenge. Um, could we build something that would be truly unique in this country today and really important for the country as we drive forward? And the second piece is, you know, being a first-generation college student, you know, my brother and sister didn't go to college. Their kids didn't go to college. You can just see the difference, right? You have so many opportunities to control your life, to be able to make your own decisions. If somebody's treating you unfairly, you have other options. And Battelle's focus, you know, we're a nonprofit. So even though we don't take uh, donations, we earn, we compete against primarily for-profit companies to earn money, but then we give that money away. And we do it primarily in STEM education. And for me, I've volunteered in STEM uh, my entire career uh, because it's something that's so important to me, especially for kids that maybe haven't had the exposure or in disadvantaged situations, um, poverty, other things. Uh, so Battelle's really good at that part of this. And for me, that part was really exciting. The part of my day job uh, could actually be helping um, millions, hopefully, of kids get exposed to STEM and then hopefully many of them will go to college and, and our country needs more engineers and scientists and, you know, we can create that. That's a, a fun way to spend your day job. And Lou, you mentioned early on, you know, that when you first got there, like implementing business strategies and, and really focusing the company more on being profitable and being not, well, not profitable, obviously, but, you know, making enough money to make sure that you guys would be there for the long haul and that turning that around was kind of part of your main goals. Were there any other big goals early on? Yeah, what? And, and I'll interrupt there. Actually, it is being profitable right now. Again, uh, so I think Battelle's a very unique nonprofit. Uh, think of Battelle as a for-profit company, but instead of paying dividends and giving stock options out to our employees, we take the earnings and we give the money away. Uh, and that's our mission set up by Gordon Battelle. But we compete against for-profit companies. We compete fearlessly in the marketplace. Uh, and that was something I think we had to relearn. So when I came in, I really wanted to get the company refocused back on heavy science, um, heavy engineering, differentiated capabilities. And then again, put that business model around it, um, get our cost structure in the right place, uh, get our uh, new business development team uh, set up so we had big enough business funnels to go after. 
And in over the last three years, we've really done that. And we've grown from, you know, we were a little bit under 5 billion uh, in 2017. Uh, this year, you know, we won't post our, our books for a while, but we'll be closing in on $9 billion of revenues. So it's, it's been a really fun ride so far. The team has just done fantastically. You talk about that R&D philosophy, and then also it kind of sounds like, you know, just the mission of the, of the entire company and organization towards nonprofit and giving back and doing the right thing. And you guys ended up uh, developing what I know to be the first, maybe it was the only process for sanitizing masks for hospital personnel in, in a time when there's an extreme shortage and nobody knew what they were going to do. So I'm curious if you could talk us to the process of developing something like that. And was there another organization that was even in the same position to be able to capitalize like you could, given the fact that you guys had such a strong R&D arm and such a strong mission behind you? Yeah, no, I think we were uniquely positioned. Um, our team had done work back about five years ago, three or four years ago. We did a two-year study for the FDA that we proved that you could clean these masks um, using a hydrogen peroxide vapor in a very specific way and pressure and, and such things. But we had done it on, you know, three or four masks and a two by two foot size and, and to really make this work. And, and when we first started talking to people about this project was back in early March. And if you remember, that's when everybody's panicking over COVID. We didn't know how bad it was going to be. We were seeing case loads grow and double every day. Uh, right, This was a little bit before we actually went into lockdown. And at that time, um, we thought we were going to need tens of millions of, of N95 masks every day in this country, which is more than we used in a year nationally before that. So we had to figure out how to scale this quickly. And it was actually a couple of our engineers. Um, what we did, what I did at the CEO level is in January, we saw this coming. The day that Singapore um, had the same, had about a, went from two cases, I think to a hundred, if I remember my numbers right. Uh, and I know Singapore has about the same number of Chinese visitors every year that the United States does. Uh, we sat down with our leadership team. We basically said, it's coming here. What can we do about it? What can we do to help? And, and I gave, told the team, don't worry about the money. You know, we've gotten ourselves in a strong financial position now. We'll figure that part out later. But what ideas do you have? Get out to all of our engineers, all of our scientists. Let, let's start working really hard. One of our uh, engineers who had worked on the study remembered this. His wife was actually uh, works at Ohio Health, and very quickly we made a partnership between the two organizations, uh, and our team ran like crazy. Uh, literally worked around the clock. Within about eight days, we'd built an ISO van, which is one of those 10 by 10 by 20 foot vans you see rolling down with the tractor trailers uh, that could actually hang these masks. We had the pumps, we had everything. We proved the system worked. We tested to make sure there was no virus left in them. We had safety factors, all those things in place. Within about another five days, we got um, the FDA approvals. And then we had to scale. Um, suddenly, a few days later, we had a government contract to build 60 of these systems. So the kind of stuff you have to think about is, you know, I sat down with my leadership and, and it was everything from how do we build supply chains out? Um, how do we double or triple our quality assurance to make sure those parts are perfect? Um, we set a program up to do continuous research and, and test samples of the mass from each shipment uh, and always make sure that we were, that our processes hadn't shift and we weren't seeing um, issues with how these masks were being cleaned because we certainly didn't want to spread the virus in any way or get anyone sick. We partnered uh, with Cardinal Health here to help us do distribution around the country, FedEx and others. Uh, you know, it was a huge, we took our entire sales team 
and we put them on uh, the job of signing individual agreements with locations around the country that would use this mass cleaning system. Everything from large hospital systems uh, down to eventually, and what we're still supporting today, mom and pop, dentist, uh, police departments, fire departments, where some of them will bring in, you know, 10 masks and we'll clean them for them and give them back. So it's been a it's been a daunting experience. We actually rolled some numbers up for a little celebration we had recently. We had 113 different departments at Patel work together on this. I'm not sure we've ever had that level of, of um, collaboration across the company before, um, but it's amazing. We built those 60 systems in about two weeks, uh, got them deployed around the country with the help of the Defense Logistics Organization and the government. We hired. Uh, 800 people right away. We took about 250 volunteers out of um, Battelle who knew how to handle hazardous materials. We trained all these people, put them in facilities around the country, put in data systems to collect daily metrics on every batch of how the masks were cleaned. And, and we've just continued to do that over time. The system's starting to catch up to where the manufacturers, we don't intend this to be a long-term system. This is just uh, until the mass providers can catch up and give the country the volume it needs. And that's starting to happen. So we're hoping we'll be able to wind this program down by you know the end of the calendar year, first quarter next year. But it's been a great program and it's, it's probably been a great program of teamwork and collaboration for Battelle as much as anything. And we've now cleaned our, uh, recently we cleaned our 3 millionth mask for the country. And the nice part for me uh, when you talk to the users on the customer side is when this started, uh, many of our using systems were giving doctors and nurses one mask a week. In fact, I've, I've got a daughter who's an anesthesiologist at a hospital in Atlanta at the time and a niece who's a nurse in Topeka, Kansas. And, you know, one was getting one mask a week and the other one was told to bring a bandana into work. So this got all these systems back to at least one mask a day. And I think it's been pretty successful. So it's it's been a great I think example of what a team can do when it comes together, when the right culture is in place and you have some really innovative people who can have a great idea, but then we can all come together to scale it um, incredibly fast. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty incredible. It's kind of, it's kind of a sense of pride for Columbus, right? To have an organization like Patel here that that can do something like that. So, uh, you know, hats off to you guys for that. We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett family foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode. Lou, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, are there any other initiatives going on right now related to COVID? Yeah, there are. We um, So we had actually built our own test for COVID that was very similar to the uh, the commercial test that was being used overseas, but used slightly different reagents and equipment because we knew there were shortages. Uh, we planned originally on just using that test for ourselves to be able to keep our labs open. But when there was testing shortage just uh, nationwide and statewide, we uh, partnered with Ohio State and we actually took that test into their CLIA lab. So at um, Wexner Medical Hospital, uh, we ripped a bunch of our equipment out of our labs. They ripped equipment out of their labs. You know, we had our vice presidents uh, in those laboratories and weekends with the scrub brushes and bleach, you know, scrubbing the places down to get them up and running. And we got those uh, tests approved and we've been, uh, Ohio State's leading. We still have our folks in working with them shoulder to shoulder. But I think last I heard, we've been doing a thousand to 1500 tests a day for the last three months now. Um, so I think that's been really exciting for the organization. We've also started to work on uh, antibody and a few other tests that we run out of our laboratories today and can test our own people. We're also 
uh, working with a number of the vaccine companies. We don't actually design the vaccines, but we do a lot of the safety and efficacy work for vaccine developers in general. And particularly when you hear about these mRNA, the messenger RNA type vaccines, which is a is a new and really exciting um, potential drug. Uh, we've got some unique technologies that help do those evaluations quicker with some of the models. So we're really hopeful that, um, you know, our partners are going to be successful. And by the end of this calendar year, or so we'll start to get a vaccine or two that we can deploy around the country and, you know, get this behind us and behind the world. And what about other key initiatives that the company's working on outside of COVID-19 focus? You know, we, we just all kinds of exciting things are going on at the company today. We run a number of the national labs for the Department of Energy around the country. In fact, I think we have number one market share. We have a bid in for a new laboratory. Uh, we've been working with them very care- very um, closely during COVID. We have also expanded into research infrastructure management based on that. And we run the uh, National Science Foundation's largest environmental program called NEON, where we're really collecting data for a 30-year track record of what's happening in our field streams, and in places around our continental United States uh, and taking millions of data points a day and building both a physical and a digital track record. Uh, We just won a job um, from the National Science Foundation to support all the Arctic infrastructure for all the research that goes on for the country there. And then some of the other cool things that we're up to, a lot of defense work that we really can't talk about, but in the environmental cleanup area, we've actually invented a new technology that, that can destroy these compounds that are called PFASs. And it's just coming out of the R&D stage, but we're really excited because uh, this could be the country's next asbestos. Um, If you saw the movie Dark Waters, these are the materials we're talking about. They're really helpful materials. They're the strongest bond in nature. So we tend to use them for Teflon coatings, for pans, uh, waterproofing for jackets, fire retardants. They work really well. The problem is they never break down. And what's happening is they're getting into our water systems around the country. Uh, and around the world. And there's a lot of research that um, some of our scientists believe that these will be found to be carcinogens uh, at some point in the not too distant future. So we've been investing very heavily in a number of ways to encapsulate, isolate. Uh, We're trying to find methods where this won't bankrupt the country if we have to do a cleanup, where with asbestos, we would go out and scrape the top two or three, you know, feet of dirt and then haul it all off somewhere. Uh, that would be extremely detrimental to our economy and, and the world in solving this. So we're trying to build biology and, and chemical methods to actually be able to filter strain and then destroy these actual carcinogens. So uh, pretty exciting uh, early days, but some great inventions that our teams come up with. And then um, the last one I'll talk about right now is we have a program called NeuroLife. That was another partnership with Ohio State that's extremely exciting. About five years ago, Um, we implanted a chip into the head uh, brain of a um, young man who had had a terrible accident and became a paraplegic. Over that time, we've now developed the hardware and software and the ability that we can read his brain signals, decode them with the computer, and we can actually send signals down to a sleeve on his arm and he can reposition his arm again. So he can drink a Coke, he can play a wee guitar just by thinking. He can also drive a remote control car just by thinking, (laughs) doesn't have to touch anything now. And the last thing that our our team just did, and we've just written a couple articles about this, is it's a little bit difficult for him to train because if you think about how you and I move our arm and feel something, we'll stop our movement when we feel it hits something. Well, in his case, since we're 
um, just providing the signals to make it move. He doesn't get that sensory feedback. So we've now outfitted him so he can actually feel if his hand touches something and we can send a signal back up through his brain and insert into his brain a signal that makes him think and feel like he actually came up against resistance and hit something. So really excited, still in the research stage. Um, this is a very brave young man who's been our uh, first client or uh, experiment on this. But um, when we start to think about what this can do to the world for stroke victims, for Parkinson's disease, um, the lots of abilities for human uh, machine interfaces to, to help people's lives over time, uh, you know, 20, 10, 20 years from now, there could be some fantastic um, outcomes from this that could affect many, many people, not just uh, people that are, you know, in wheelchairs or uh, have suffered some catastrophic disease or catastrophic accident. I can't even imagine how complex it would be to code a system that could tell a brain, hey, you're hitting something with your arm. I tell you, we, we've got some great scientists and they've done this for a while now. Uh, we actually took this a version of this to the Consumer Electronics Show last year and, and our lead scientist uh, put the sleeve on his arm and we took a, a perfect putting stroke from a professional putter, a professional golfer, and input that into the computer software. And basically he can relax his arm and we'll put the signal in his arm. We'll do a perfect putting stroke. Oh, don't so, tell Mike yeah. that. He just bought six of well, them. Well, I'm a He's golfer cutting as well. He's cut his head open fact, right now. He's trying in to fact, dur in. during yeah during COVID, that's been my one respite is being able to get out and golf. And if you think about um, how this could potentially evolve over time, maybe to teach muscle memory for mm -hmm. athletes uh, or for workers that are trying to go through movements or uh, physical therapists, uh, lots of possibilities and, and exciting things that can come out of this in the future. Yeah, I mean, sure. Hey, I want I want Rory McIlroy's swing. Okay, well here we'll program it and it'll teach you how to do it. I mean, you're, you're in know. line right after me. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, they probably can't give me Rory's athleticism. So, hey there, Conquerors. We want to take a quick moment to talk about one of our sponsors, Studio 301. Kyle and his team have helped us redesign our website, taking the podcast in a new direction that we truly love. And we have some incredible guests here on the show. And Studio 301 has given us a website that reflects the caliber of the people that join us. And the Studio 301 team can help you with everything from brand strategy and redesigns to market research, videography, social media overhauls, and a whole lot more. You can go check them out at studio301.org. That's studio301.org. So, I mean, one thing I'm curious about, I'm always thinking about the mentality side of things, especially with someone in your position and and uh, at the level of success that you've you've achieved. You know, when you look at leading so many brilliant individuals and you guys have so many lines of revenue and so many products and initiatives going on. I mean, there's who knows how many successful companies sitting inside of Battelle, you know, so many things that you guys are doing that can make one company, you know, possibly a billion dollars or, or more. When you wake up in the morning, you know, what, where's your focus? And I'm um, almost curious, and maybe it's an odd question, but where do you develop the confidence to, to believe that you can successfully lead such amazing, amazing initiatives and amazing teams? Well, you know, I, I think you sneak up on it over time. But um, it's always great to work with people that are smarter than you are. And we have a brilliant team and it's just so much fun. I was like a kid in a candy store at the first year, even with all the management problems we had, um, the science and the scientists in the organization were just fa fabulous. And you could just see it was like all these uncut diamonds lying around on the floor and all you had to do is pick them up and put put models around them. You know, I, I would also say not not to make it sound too easy, but we've done an incredible amount of work on building our strategy to really define our core and focus on our core because we were kind of doing anything for a buck before. And, and like most businesses that live, that leads to a lot of, um, dilution, a, a lot of weaker positions across the portfolio and it's harder to keep track of. So we've really built a strategy around 
the things we really do well. And, and we're hundreds of engineers deep in chemistry, biology, and advanced materials. So we've really taken those, those three core concepts and then the enabling things around them, our ability to manage complex systems, to program management, you know, software, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, and, but I don't consider those products on their own. I consider those enablers to speed the invention and realization process for, for those physical areas that we're strongest in. And then we focused on uh, which markets we want to be in. So we want to be in the defense market where we've historically been, the health and life sciences market, uh, the environmental uh, cleanup market and environmental um, you know, resource and, and, and green markets and national lab and research management. And that's kind of what we do. And if, if our technologies and our patents, we've also really turned up the innovation engine and we've gone from 20 or 30 patents a year to um, we applied for more than 115 last year, even in COVID. And we have a thing we call an IPDR, which is the first stage of somebody has an idea that might be patentable. So they don't all make it to the end, but we've taken those from a few dozen to the last two years, we've done over 400 of those out of our team. So they're, so our teams are really encouraged, um, incentivized to, to create new things, to create IP. And then any of the area where there's uses for this IP outside of for maybe these, these companies within Battelle or this technology for others, if it's outside those core markets, we actually have a team that works on licensing that to others that won't compete with us in our core markets, but can take those uh, to other places. And it keeps us from getting too diluted and, and thinking about too many things at once. And what about personal initiatives? You know, I mean, you obviously have a, a tremendously hectic and, and stressful and uh, important schedule. How do you, you know, professionally, but on the personal side, whether it's uh, extracurriculars or hobbies, are there anything outside of Battelle? Yeah, you know, I uh, you read all the board pieces. Um, I, I think Jennifer and I have really jumped into being part of the community here. And I think I'm at a point in my career where we've been very fortunate, lucky, and we have some resources um, and we want to give back. So, you know, it's one of the reasons I do a lot of these boards. Most of these are charitable boards. You know, we want to make a difference while we're here and, and you know, anything I can do that, you know, helps more kids get education. You know, so many challenges in our society that we've all talked about so much this year and, and started to have better conversations around. I'm still convinced one of the best enablers is make sure we get an education to every one of our kids. And the more of those that can be in a STEM area, they're always going to be able to have a job. They'll always have options. Uh, and they'll learn techniques. They'll learn how things really work in the world uh, that can help them become entrepreneurs and think about those other areas. So that's my passion. You know, with any luck, uh, I've probably got another five or seven years before I uh, start golfing a little bit more full time and working a little less. We'll run that out here at Patel and um, continue to make an impact on the community, both through the company and Jennifer and I personally while we're here. Right when that chip comes out, how ironic. <laughs> Speaking of education, I was doing a little bit of research. I saw that, uh, well, at least the internet says you went to Rutgers. Is that true? I did. That was my master's degree. Yes. Okay. So are you a, uh, are you a football fan? Uh, I know the Rutgers didn't join the big 10 until like 2014, but they've finally got football coming back this weekend. Is that something that you're into or? So, so I am, but, but I'll put it this way. Rutgers is night school. It was a great school, but that was a job. <laughs> It was, it was hard work because I was working at the time. So Kansas State, where I went to undergrad, I'm passionate about. And, um, and I love the Buckeyes. So uh, everybody in town asked me, everybody asked me if I'm a Buckeye now. I can't wait till they play. And, and I always give them the same answer. I'm a Buckeye every time until they're playing Kansas State. That's fair. Yeah, I was just, I was just curious about where your, where your allegiance lies. Our sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. 
Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Well, Lou, it's it's been great talking to you so far. Uh, you know, I think a good place kind of to pivot towards some of our last questions of the show. And, and one of those is, hey, do you have any advice for our listeners out there? And, and and just to make sure you kind of have an idea of who that is, right? It's mostly people in Columbus, young professionals, 20 to 35. Sorry to everybody out there who doesn't fit that. I know that I'm surprised I haven't gotten a comment or a message yet saying, hey, I'm not a young professional, but... I'm a young unprofessional. <laughs> right, yeah. So, but that, that's kind of the, the group that we're talking to here. Well, I guess I'd give one piece of advice on the professional side and one on the personal side. On the professional side, uh, like we talked a little bit about, you know, be bold, take risks, work hard. I've never been smart enough. In, in, in fact, I got a great story. Uh, my, I have you know, two kids, like I mentioned earlier. My daughter is always type A. I'd ask her in college if she actually took a break today. Uh, my son learned early in life. You don't have to, he didn't have to work that hard to get B's and it was kind of hard to work for A's. So he learned to take it a little bit easier and maybe he wasn't as studious. And uh, he, but he got through college. He started working for a couple of years and he actually, we were uh, at the house one night and we were actually having a beer together. And, and he looked at me and he said, so dad, if I'm going to get ahead, I'm actually going to have to work hard, aren't I? And it just made me crack up. But my only answer to him was, you know, I was never smart enough to get there any other way. And I think maybe there are some people that are, but I think especially uh, early and mid through your career, I've always worked hard, but I, I think to, to, to gain those experiences, not just to prove yourself, but it's to, it's to gain as much experience as you can because you learn from those things. Uh, I spent the first 13 years of my career in one location and I was traveling all over the country and thought I knew what was going on at these other divisions. And then I moved, the company moved me around a few times and the culture differences that you learn living in those locations versus visiting was just stunning and something I would have never expected if I hadn't actually lived it. So, you know, take risk, work hard in your career. And, and Columbus is such a vibrant, fantastic community. I think we're the, I think we're probably still the fastest growing community in the country over a million people. And you can just see things happening around here. This, this would be a great place uh, to build a career, I think. And on the personal side, you know, we're not through COVID yet. I know we're all going crazy and we're all bored out of our minds, but I think I suspect, and I hope that we're going to have a, a vaccine by the end of the year. And it'll probably take, you know, six months to do the 700 million doses. We'll need to get them out to the country because it's probably a two dose vaccine. So don't take too, don't go too crazy and take too many risks now. Don't expose your parents or people that you work with unnecessarily. Just think that, you know, if you wait another, if you can hold it out just a couple more quarters, we're probably going to have vaccines that'll get us beyond this. And you don't want to lose somebody you love um, because of that. So I, it's going to be really hard as it gets cold. Like I said, I've been, my sanity relief has been playing golf, but we're all going to have to find ways to, um, to still, you know, wear our mask and do the right things through this so that we can, you know, help each other get through this and then rebuild once we're done. And, and I, I hopefully, I think once we get a vaccine approved, uh, we'll be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that, that'll be the beginning of an exciting period for us as um, everybody comes out with all this pent up energy, ready to rebuild the world again. Absolutely. And Lou, our, our last question of the show here, it, it's centered around the theme of conquering Columbus and that is live uncomfortably. And without telling you too much about why we chose that particular phrase, uh, what, what do you think of when you hear it and uh, how would it apply to your life and career? Live uncomfortably. Well, I guess you could, you could imply that to sacrifice first <laughs> to do the right things. And, um, 
And I think that's, that's probably a good role model to build. Um, I'd have to think about that probably a little bit more. <laughs> it's got to put you on the spot there. Sorry. It uh, <laughs> that's all wasn't right. on the outline. <laughs> well, awesome. Lou. We appreciate the time. It was great having you on today and uh, appreciate all the advice you're able to give us and taking some time out of your day for us. I was curious and, and we'll probably cut the recording here about probably 60, 45 seconds ago, whatever. But um, one of the questions I want to ask, and I didn't want to put you on the spot, just in terms of your idea of the importance of having more businesses like Battelle that have that nonprofit, but have uh, a lot of for-profit product lines driving it in the in the community and in our economy in the United States. I mean, we, there's not a tremendous amount of them. A lot of people, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs are usually going for uh, that billion-dollar unicorn or how can they make the next tech company. But somebody who's focused on, um, you know, causes that are that are bettering our environment and the world. What do you see in the U.S. economy? Is there anything that sticks out in terms of a trend? And, and what do you think of the importance of companies like that? Yeah, so so I think they are important. I think it's really, really hard. There's only a few other companies like Patel in the country, and most of them are much, much smaller. Most of them are $100 million at best and struggle to stay alive. And it's because R&D is hard, right? And usually the way big companies like Google and others do R&D is they spend the money in R&D, but then they expect to get the billions of dollars payout when they actually have the, the manufactured or the distributed digital product that gets out into everybody's hands and can create the ad revenues or whatever product they're trying to generate. So this is an interesting model. I'm really proud to be part of it because we can do so much good for the community, but it's a tough business model. And um, I don't know how many of those we would see pop up I would give great credit to the government and our national laboratories because I think that's the other place where if you look at fundamental research, a lot of good research happens in our universities, but we typically don't have the staying power to see a lot of it through because teachers come and go, students come and go. And our national laboratories, the government's really made an investment. And this, that's one thing this administration has done quite well is they've extended those investments to build the particle accelerators, the, the tools and equipment that our scientists need to look at things at smaller and smaller scales. And I think when we look at global competition, those investments are going to be so important for us. So whether it comes through a national laboratory, through a company like Patel, um, I think as long as the country's getting it done so we can be the base for those for-profit companies to run off and build the economies around us, I think that works just fine. If we ever lose those things or start to cut that re those research dollars, I don't think our corporate entities, uh, especially with the Wall, you know, Wall Street uh, kind of quarterly focus that we have, that we've had for years, I don't think today's anything unique, I think we'll be in real trouble over time. So I think it's something that we should all really keep an eye on as we look at future administrations and competition, probably especially with China, whose economy has the clout now to, to outspend us in many areas. Well, Lou, it, it's been great talking to you and uh, we really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for My pleasure, on. guys. Lots of fun. And Congress, thanks for tuning in. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Lou Von Thayer, the CEO of Patel. If you enjoyed that episode, leave us a like. Tell your friends. We appreciate you tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. Oh.